Good evening, everyone. I'm Judy Cooper, the coordinator of public programs here. And um, this is a special evening because this is the last program that we have rescheduled, last of the rescheduled programs from snow, polar vortex, and all that. So we are very glad to have you here with us, Lee Goodmark. Um, I think it was late January, snowstorm, so um, all of that is behind us and we're very grateful. Um, On the table by the door in the back are some program flyers and our calendar about upcoming events, so we hope you'll grab some of those and take them home and come back and see us. We have lots of um, good things happening. James McBride, the um, uh, National Book Award winner, will be here this Saturday at 3 o'clock in the auditorium upstairs. Uh, He's the headliner for the City Lit Festival. So there, there will be all kinds of um, authors here, but he's the he's the big name, the big draw this year. So um, it's my pleasure to welcome to the podium Jane Murphy, who's a professor of law at the University of Baltimore School of Law, and she is going to introduce her friend Lee Goodmark. Thank you, and good evening. Many of you know Lee, but for those of you who don't, it's my great pleasure and honor to introduce her. I've known Lee since she joined the University of Baltimore faculty in 2003. She came to us after receiving her undergraduate degree at Yale, her law degree at Stanford, and several years of practice representing women and children experiencing abuse. She continued that work as director of our family law clinic for a number of years, and now kind of pains me to say as the director of the gender violence clinic at the University of Maryland Law School. In addition to her clinical work, she's become a prominent scholar on issues related to domestic violence. She's written a number of law review articles, and now this book, A Troubled Marriage, Domestic Violence, and the Legal System. In the book, Lee, among other things, asks the broad question, is the legal system truly serving those experiencing abuse? She challenges us to think much more broadly about what we mean by domestic violence, about the circumstances, the many varied circumstances women experiencing domestic violence find themselves in, and the ways in which the broader community can respond to this issue. In making this challenge, Lee demonstrates a number of qualities I've come to admire in her, her creativity, her sharp intellect, and frankly, her courage and candor. Because the challenge that she lays out, as it turns out, is somewhat controversial. In questioning the efficacy of the legal system's response to domestic violence, Lee risks alienating those advocates who have worked very hard to have laws passed to protect women, as well as the judges who apply them every day. And as one of those advocates, I have to admit, as I was reading the book, I began to feel a little defensive. But I know for Lee, this book is not just an academic exercise in being provocative or original. It comes from years of helping women and being frustrated that the legal system often comes up way too short. And she painstakingly in this book makes the case for change. As one reviewer said, Goodmark's analysis highlights the possibilities and the limits of law for abused women seeking justice and proposes extra legal remedies that will undoubtedly spark debate but ultimately may prove appealing to the true experts on domestic violence, women who have experienced abuse. We're in for a challenging and rewarding talk. Join me in welcoming my friend, Lee Goodmark. I'm just trying to gauge how many of you have already heard this. Um, So thank you so much, Jane. Um, It is always, always, always a pleasure. Uh, Jane is... One of my mentors, probably my most important mentor, and so having her here means the world to me. 
Um, so it's not just that it might alienate some of the advocates and others who've worked on these issues. It's that it has alienated and made people very upset. And undoubtedly, for those of you with some experience with domestic violence, it may make you upset too. Um, so I'll look forward to having a conversation about kind of the ideas that I want to raise with you tonight. But first, I want to talk a little bit about how we got to where we are in terms of domestic violence law and policy. So in the 1970s, um, some of you may remember, um, if you were abused by a spouse, and let's be very clear, not a boyfriend and not a same-sex partner, but a spouse, what would the legal system's response have been? And the answer to that is, by and large, nothing. The legal system had very, very little to offer Anyone who had been subjected to abuse at that time, if you wanted to get a divorce, you could do that on the basis of cruelty uh, in most states, but the cruelty had to be pretty extreme. And it's always entertaining to take students back through the old cases in Maryland that detail what cruelty is and isn't. Um, And if you look at those old cases, you would be astonished at the level of violence that you would have to experience to be eligible for a divorce on the basis of cruelty. If you wanted to press criminal charges... Basically, you'd have been laughed at. Um, Police might come to your house, but when they did, their training manual said, and they're not urban myth, I promise you, this is what the training manual said. Tell the husband, and of course it was always the husband, to take a walk around the block and come back when he's cooled down. No charge of assault, certainly no specific crime of domestic violence. Very, very little would have been done. And the first changes to the law, in fact, were not changes to the criminal law. They were changes to the civil law. They were changes that enabled women who'd been subjected to abuse to get what's called a civil protection order, an order that restrains your abusive partner from coming near you, from continuing to abuse you, and in later years was expanded to include remedies like custody, uh, family maintenance, use of and possession of a family home, or other kinds of family property. And what was important about those civil remedies, and I think what we've lost so much in the system, was that they were designed for women to be able to determine what they needed and how they wanted to be protected and to ask for that specific relief. They weren't imposed upon you. You didn't have to go through a prosecutor or a police officer to get one. You could go on your own. You could tell the court what you needed. And that was the protection that would be made available to you. So those were the first changes in the law. Later changes in the law uh, were criminal changes, and there were two kinds of changes to the criminal law. Some were substantive changes, and some were procedural changes. So in terms of the substantive law, you got uh, states passing crimes of domestic violence, or call or creating degrees, an assault in a certain degree because it's against a family member, or sentencing enhancement for crimes that were uh, committed against a family member, a spouse, or a partner. But much more importantly than changes to the substantive law, because assault is assault, and you can always make that charge, much more important than substantive law changes were the changes in procedure um, that I'll talk about a little more later. And they had to do with mandating that state actors do certain things if domestic violence was occurring. So the first changes were uh, changes in police procedure called mandatory arrest. And what mandatory arrest does is say, If there has been a crime of domestic violence committed and the police have probable cause to believe that that has happened, the police must arrest. Those changes were in response to this system that we had where the police were telling people to take a walk around the block, but not treating domestic violence as a crime. And so the idea was if we remove discretion from police officers so that they no longer have the ability to make that decision to tell the guy to walk around the block, 
we'll all be able to take this crime much more seriously in the way that we should. So arrest rates in, uh, improved, increased, depending on how you look at uh, arrest, um, with the inception of mandatory arrest, and kind of a host of other problems came with that. I'll talk about those in a little while. But what didn't increase was the number of prosecutions. And so after tackling the idea of mandatory arrest, uh, advocates went off after prosecutors and said, we're bringing you cases, right? We, we've got arrests. Why are these cases not being prosecuted? And prosecutors very predictably said, well, because our star witness doesn't want to go forward. And without our star witness, we can't do anything. And so in order to deal with the issue of women subjected to abuse not wanting to go forward with prosecutions, prosecutors made a number of changes to their procedure. First, in thinking about you know, what's called victimless prosecution, the idea that you could bring a prosecution forward without the participation of the victim of the crime in much the same way that you would do a homicide prosecution, right? You don't have the victim there. So you have to do sufficient evidence gathering, um, put together your case without reliance on that testimony. So that was really the first change to prosecutorial policy, was to do victimless prosecution. But after that, prosecutors began to think, okay, but we really want that witness. That witness is important. That witness is what gets us our convictions. So we have to find a way to ensure that that witness is participating, whether she wants to or not, because it's for her own good and because it helps us to carry out the state's goal of ensuring that dangerous people are taken off the streets. And that's when you got something called no-drop prosecution. And no-drop prosecution is the idea that we will not drop any case that we can make, uh, regardless of how, what, uh, regardless of the measures that we have to take to compel the victim's participation. And I'll talk about that a little bit more in just a minute as well. It's important before I start critiquing all of this stuff to recognize how important some of these changes were. So battered women's advocates and feminists and those of us who consider ourselves to be both fought really hard for these changes to both the civil and the criminal law. We believed strongly, and I count myself among them, that invoking the power of the state could really help to protect our clients from abuse and could provide them with justice, right? some kind of redress. We brought class... We brought class action lawsuits. Uh, we worked with legislators that were initially hostile to these changes, and we work with legislators who still are. Uh, we trained police and prosecutors and judges. And working with non-traditional allies like law and order conservatives, uh, feminists were really able to pass these laws and policies on both the state and federal level. The existence of the Violence Against Women Act is really a testament to what we've achieved as a movement. But over time, some of us have begun to question whether domestic violence law and policy is serving women as well as it could. And it's important to note that some people, and particularly women of color, were asking those questions from the beginning. As, as the kind of the state-based response and the punitive criminal-based response was ratcheting up, women of color from the inception of the movement were saying, perhaps this isn't such a good idea for our community. Well, more of us are asking that question now. Um, and asking it in a variety of different ways. I look at it in some ways as a problem of something called dominance feminism. Um, and so I want to talk a little bit about the influence of dominance feminism 
on domestic violence law and policy and the problematic results that looking at the problem through that lens of dominance feminism has had. And I want to suggest to you that the time has come to shift the lens through which we look at these problems, and that would give us very different kinds of solutions. So first, a a kind of a very quick, uh, very superficial description of dominance feminism. So dominance feminism is uh, really the brainchild of a law professor named Catherine McKinnon. And McKinnon is a genius. I don't think there's any doubt about that. And, And the work that she did on dominance feminism really helped to create the entire field of sexual harassment law. Um, So it's important to acknowledge the contribution there. And what McKinnon said was that men dominate women, and they dominate women by virtue of the fact that they can sexually victimize women. So sex is the primary vehicle for women's continued subordination. Because every woman can be raped, every woman is a potential victim, and therefore every woman is subordinated. And that has set up kind of the the gender hierarchies within our society, is this potential for victimization. McKinnon used that to explain why sexual harassment is such a problem. Um, She used it to talk about pornography and the harms done by pornography. She didn't talk much about domestic violence. She never really theorized it as much as she did other forms of abuse of women. But other scholars took the ideas behind dominance feminism and used them to describe domestic violence as a part of a system of societal norms that granted men dominion over their homes and everything within them, including their families, and that tacitly granted men the right to use physical violence to control their possessions. So to break a man's hegemony over his abused spouse requires the state to kind of pierce that veil of privacy, Uh, to say that the home is no longer private space, but it's space in which the state has an investment. The private is made public. And by doing that, send challenge men's presumptive authority to discipline their wives and give the state the right to intervene in the lives of the family using the power of the legal system to send the message that continued domination and control of your family is simply not permissible. And in so doing, to rescue women from abusive relationships. I argue in the book that dominance feminism, the impact of dominance feminism, can be seen in a couple of different places, really four places. First, in the way that we define domestic violence. Second, in the way that we talk about victims, and I don't tend to use the word victims. I tend to use a much clumsier construction, uh, people subjected to abuse, but the way in which victim narratives are set out. Third, in the way that policy requires separation between an abusive uh, man and his partner. And fourth, in the way that we use mandatory policies. Uh, And I'll talk about each of those in turn. So first, in terms of the definitions of domestic violence, the legal system's definition of domestic violence is excessively focused on physical abuse. That is what the law cares about. So if you look at the things that the law regulates, it regulates assaults and it regulates threats of assaults. In Maryland's protective order statute, for example, you can get a protective order for Serious bodily harm, fear of imminent serious bodily harm, assault, uh, sexual assault, false imprisonment, and stalking. Right? So all of those things very much focused on physical harm or threats of physical harm. But what my clients have been telling me for the last 20 years is that while physical harm is a problem, 
it's not the biggest problem that they face. And in fact, that the emotional abuse and other kinds of abuse that they experience are far worse for them than the physical harm they experience. And so let me tell you a story. Um, We had a client who this was the worst of the physical abuse that she experienced over a 19-year period. So her husband did that to her, I think, about four times over a 19-year period. But what he also did was to lock every door in their house, every cabinet, the pantry door, the door to the washing machine, the door to the computer. He had the keys and she did not. If she needed food, she had to ask for the key. If she needed to wash clothes, she had to ask to get in. If she wanted a new roll of toilet paper, she had to give the spindle to her husband to get a new roll of toilet paper. If she wanted clean towels, she had to ask for them and she had to turn in her old towels. Uh, If she wanted money, she had to turn in a three-by-five card at least a couple of days in advance explaining what she needed the money for. Uh, It could be denied for any reason, including, and I'm quoting, that she had been a bitch. Um, If she wanted to go to work, he would give her enough money to buy gas to get to work and back that day. So every day, and she was a teacher, every day she had to ask for money to get to work and back. Sometimes he allowed their daughters to have the keys uh, to all of these locks, but never her. Over time, he forbade her from eating with the family, uh, telling her that she had to eat standing up in the kitchen while the family ate at the table. Uh, when she would try to talk, he would say to her, uh, we're not interested in, to, the, to their children, we're not interested in what mommy has to say. Um, when we did her trial for her divorce at the end of this 19 years of abuse, her friends described the profound change that had taken place in her, that where she had once been a vibrant, go-getter, excited about her life, really ambitious, you know, wanted to get a graduate degree, she was now almost incapable of functioning on a day-to-day basis. She had anxiety disorder. She was depressed. If you saw her, she could not, her clothes were disheveled. Her hair was disheveled. She was fundamentally a different person. The law would do nothing about that because the law isn't interested in that kind of emotional abuse. So, but for the fact that he had hit her on the head four times, you know, there would have been very little legal remedy for her. That's a problem. Um, And this excessive focus on victimization has prompted us, I think, to focus more on physical abuse than on anything else. There are lots of other kinds of abuse that women experience that are equally, if not more, debilitating. And I talk about them in the book, not just that kind of emotional abuse that I've just described to you, but economic abuse. Um, And you've heard a little bit about that in the story, the control of somebody's finances in order to control their behavior. Reproductive abuse, um, getting someone pregnant on purpose to be able to control them or denying them uh, the ability to get pregnant, harming someone during pregnancy, Jackie Campbell at Hopkins has found that the greatest violence occurs in relationships during pregnancy. The greatest chance of uh, maternal homicide is during pregnancy. So uh, reproductive abuse is a huge problem. Uh, Spiritual abuse, denying somebody the ability to carry out their spiritual life in ways that are fundamental to their identity. So there are studies of Orthodox Jews. And just the one that sticks with me is denying somebody the ability to make uh, challah for Shabbat, right? That very important family-focused function um, that's so core to the identity of an Orthodox woman, um, interfering with women's ability to carry out their spiritual lives in other ways. All of those have profound impacts on people subjected to abuse, and the law doesn't do anything about them. Now, it's not going to be my argument that the law should do something about them necessarily. 
my argument is really that because we have focused so excessively on law in the creation of domestic violence law and policy, we've ignored other kinds of ways to help people subjected to abuse. So I'll talk about that in a little while, but I just want to make it clear. I'm not necessarily advocating that that we be able to get a protective order for spiritual abuse. I think that's a conversation to be had. The point I'm more interested in making is we need to be doing something else, something beyond just giving legal remedies uh, to people. The second uh, issue that's created, I think, by dominance feminism or has, has been influenced by dominance feminism is the essentialization of women. So essentialization is just a fancy word for saying all women are treated the same. Um, this belief that every woman is the same, every woman experiences abuse the same way. And so this, this essentialization of women who've been abused really gives us a picture, one picture, of what a woman subjected to abuse is supposed to be. So the stereotype that we have is that she's weak, she's meek, she's passive, she's unable to fight back on her own. Um, and that may be true of some women subjected to abuse. It's certainly not true of many, many, many of my clients. And the problem that's created by that kind of stereotype is that it ignores the experiences of women who don't conform to those victim stereotypes. It ignores the ways that identities, various features of women's identities, intersect to create the conditions in which they experience abuse. And it creates expectations among judges and others uh, that women are supposed to look a certain way. And when they fail to look that way, uh, denies them the kind of help that they need. So this stereotype of victims as passive, weak, afraid, but also white and middle class reflects deliberate choices by the battered women's movement about how they wanted to portray women subjected to abuse. So if you look at some of the early advocacy work, there's a very big emphasis on domestic violence can happen to anyone. It's not just a problem of poor women, and it's not just a problem of black women. Domestic violence can happen to anyone. And that is certainly true. But the impetus for that message really had to do with getting white policymakers to become interested in the problem. And so saying it could be your mother, your sister, or your daughter, not your wife, um, but definitely your mother, your sister, or your daughter, was a way to get white men in power interested in the issue. And it was a deliberate choice that was made. And so absolutely domestic violence happens to everyone, but it impacts people very differently. So women of color experience violence differently. Poor women experience violence differently by virtue of you know, the, their social conditions, the places where they are in their lives. So having this essentialized notion denies the experiences of those women and makes it much more difficult for them to get assistance through the legal system. All of this is underscored by some of the social science theory that uh, becomes part of the law later on, um, much of which was championed by a woman named Dr. Lenore Walker, who really did create um, this field of study as a social scientist and whose work is tremendously influential in the legal community still. And, you know, the battered woman came out in 79, and still those ideas hold tremendous amounts of influence within the, the legal world. But Dr. Walker kind of put two theories out there. One was the cycle of violence. And what the cycle of violence said, and if you've done a domestic violence 101 training, you know, the cycle of violence says that there are kind of three distinct phases in an abusive relationship. You start with the tension building phase where you're walking on eggshells and you know something's going to happen, but you don't know when. It leads to the acute battering phase where there's extreme physical violence, which is followed by a honeymoon phase. I'm sorry, I didn't mean it. I'll never do it again. 
the cycle of violence theory really captured the imaginations of policymakers and advocates and people who worked with battered women. And all of that would be great, except that Dr. Walker's research didn't actually support the existence of the cycle of violence. Dr. Walker's research supported the idea that these distinct phases existed, but it didn't support the idea that all three of the phases existed for the vast majority of women with whom she worked. And that didn't matter because the theory caught people's imagination and it finds its way into all kinds of places. So for example, in New Jersey, if you want to drop a protective order that you've obtained, the court first has to tell you about the cycle of violence. Basically saying, are you aware that you're in the honeymoon phase, but just, you know, just around the corner is coming the tension building phase and then you're going to get beat up again. And so incredibly problematic, right? First, that we have bad science dictating law but also because it set an expectation of what women were supposed to say when they came into court. And if your relationship wasn't a cycle of violence relationship, well, then you weren't being abused. The cycle of violence then gets incorporated into what's called battered woman syndrome, which is a kind of a profoundly misunderstood part of domestic violence law and policy. So battered woman syndrome is was used initially as a way to explain why women subjected to abuse killed their partners after years of inactivity. And what battered woman syndrome said was, you as a person who's been subjected to abuse, you're experiencing something called learned helplessness. The idea that when you are beaten frequently enough with the understanding that there's nothing that you can do to stop it, eventually you will stop trying to stop it. And so battered woman syndrome said that's what happened to these women who kill their partners, is that they understand that nothing is going to make it stop, so then they kill. And we have this stereotype of weakness and passivity that's used to explain this very extreme action. Why people didn't, and people did, so I shouldn't say why people didn't understand the contradictions inherent in that, um, I don't know. People did, and they kind of talked about them again early on, but again, Dr. Walker's research really captured the day. Battered woman syndrome doesn't say that anymore, and most people would never use that conception of it anymore. Now it's used to, as a way to explain how battered women react to the experience of being abused. And again, great in the idea that we could get that evidence before courts who previously were not interested at all in hearing about the ways in which the experiences of abuse might have affected your your decision or your need uh, to carry out a, a particularly extreme crime problematic in that it creates this essentialized victim and it doesn't really allow for people who deviate from that norm. And battered woman syndrome, too, continues to be enshrined in the law, so continues to hold, again, um, a great deal of influence over the law. So these passive stereotypes are really problematic for particular groups of women, um, women who fight back against their abusers, and there are a lot of them. So if you fight back, by definition, you can't possibly be battered, you can't possibly be abused because you are not passive. Um, two groups of women are particularly likely to fight back, African-American women and lesbians. So a huge swath of women who need assistance from abuse are kind of being singled out by definition as women who are potentially not victimized. So probably the stereotypes are really problematic for them. Um, it's also really problematic for mothers, and it's a bit of a catch-22. So either you're a weak, passive mother who hasn't got the ability to protect her children, in which case the child protective system should come in and take them away from you because you can't protect your children from being abused. Or you're an actor, and if you act to do something, 
then you find yourself in jail. And so mothers have had this particular catch-22, and particularly in, in uh, parental kidnapping cases or Hague Convention cases, where mothers who take action to protect their children by taking off with them find that they lose their children as a result of parental kidnapping allegations. The white, straight, middle-class stereotype that's really pervasive in the legal system is problematic, not surprisingly, for women of color, for lesbians, for low-income women, for immigrant women, for women with disabilities, for rural women, for anyone who doesn't conform to what that understanding of the norm is. Um, And that's particularly problematic given that credibility is so essential within the legal system when we're talking about women subjected to abuse. So when you go in to get a protective order... 99 times out of 100, you know, if we don't have pictures and we don't have any kind of medical evidence, it's just your word. And if you don't look credible to the judge, then you're not going to get assistance. Well, credibility goes hand in hand with this stereotype. If you don't look like the stereotype, then you don't look credible. And so your claim is problematic from the start, right? Your claim is questionable from the start. The third major area where I think dominance feminism has had a, a lot of influence is about separation. So domestic violence law and policy assumes that women should leave their partners. And all of our law and policy interventions are really based around the idea of separation, that if you would just, if you can just keep these people apart, she's going to be safe. Um, It's interesting that no one thinks, well, I think there is an expectation also that he will stop. There's no good reason to believe that's true, and we can talk about why that is. But this assumption that all women should leave their partners, right, to to deal with their victimization, really ignores a lot of the things that go into making relationships. Um, It it ignores all of the reasons why women might choose to stay in an abusive relationship. And if you've done domestic violence training, again, right, this is an exercise that we do. So why would a woman stay? She stays for her children. She stays because of her religion. She stays because of her immigration status, her economic status, her community. Um, The one thing we haven't done, I think, a particularly good job in talking about as advocates for women subjected to abuse is that sometimes women stay because they love their partners and they value those relationships. Um, And so that is something that we have not wanted to talk about, don't want to talk about, I think still don't want to talk about. So premising domestic violence law and policy on separation is problematic, I think, for a number of reasons. One, it's a pretty dubious claim that separation stops domestic violence given the rates of separation assault that exist. So Martha Mahoney, um, who's a law professor now at the University of Miami, named this, uh, this thing that we had been seeing, advocates had been seeing for years, right? The idea that Once people had separated, the violence didn't necessarily stop. Um, And she called that separation assault. And rates of separation assault are very high. So given that separation assault continues to happen, the idea that separation stops domestic violence seems to me problematic at best. If you look at um, kind of the women who do everything right, right, you have women who get protective orders, engage in criminal prosecution, and still end up dead you know that separation is not necessarily the answer for every woman. Now, my bigger point is that nothing is the answer for every woman. So I don't want to be heard as saying, I don't think there's a value in protective orders and I don't think there's a value in criminal prosecution. I'll tell you later. I think when women want to use those tools, those tools ought to be available for them. But to assume that these are the only tools and the best tools that we have and to disproportionately fund and focus on them, I think, is incredibly problematic. 
So what are our separation-based policies? Well, we've got protective orders, right? We've got arrest and prosecution and incarceration and divorce. And then we have newer remedies, such as the U visa, which is an immigration remedy. And the U visa was created under the Violence Against Women Act as it's touted as being uh, a way to protect immigrant uh, women who have been victimized. But really what it is is a law enforcement tool. Uh, The U visa requires you to cooperate with law enforcement in the arrest and prosecution of whoever has victimized you. And so that requires separation, right? That requires arrest. That requires incarceration. If that's not something you're interested in, the U visa is not a remedy that's available to you. Rather than really grapple with the hard questions about why women don't want separation, Um, all of those kind of hard issues. We've just chosen first to pathologize women who choose to stay in their relationships by calling what they call love traumatic bonding and saying that they don't really love their partners. They're just traumatically bonded to them. It's the Stockholm Syndrome. It's the experience of abuse has somehow made them think that they need their abusers in ways that are really problematic. Um, I think it's really hard for those of us who do this work to consent. I hate some of the respondents in my cases. I really hate them. They are not good people. I don't want my clients to be in relationships with them. Um, That's not my call. And so to the extent that we have pathologized what our clients want, right, I think that's incredibly problematic and told them that all we can do for you is to separate you from him. Well, if that's not what I want, then there's no remedy for me. And I think that's short-sighted. One of the really interesting things that I found in my research was Beth Ritchie, um, who's a criminologist, had done work with African-American women who'd been subjected to abuse. And one of the things that she found was that, on average, the abuse didn't start until two years into the relationship. So if you think about a relationship that you've had with a romantic partner for two years, at that point, you have certain, you have a certain amount of knowledge about them. You have expectations about them. You have an experience with them. And all of those things are counteracted by an act of violence that makes you go, well, this is not consistent with the person that I know and love. It's harder, I think, to say then, well, she should have just left, right? When there is that investment of time and emotional resources and the belief that this is so out of character for that person that you've come to be in love with. When you start then to put on top of that children and community expectations and religious expectations and all of the things that go into these relationships, you can see how hard separation might be. But that is what the law provides, right? That is what the legal system provides. The fourth problem that I see in the legal system's handling of domestic violence is in these mandatory policies that we've talked about a little bit. And so this is the place where people end up getting really mad at me um, and where I end up having people, you know, not being happy at all. So domestic violence law and policy, as it currently exists, assumes that the state is the best, pl- the best placed actor to intervene, intervene on women's behalves, whether they want it or not. And it does that, again, through mandatory arrest, through no-drop prosecution, and through other kinds of mandatory policies. So one could make an argument that these kinds of mandatory policies make sense if there was some evidence to believe that they were reducing domestic violence. So I could be persuaded, right, that the the state has its own goals. They may be different than a woman's goals. And if 
the state's goal of reducing violence was being met by criminalization, then I might say, okay, well, depriving a woman of the ability to make choices about when and how the state should intervene is okay, because what the state is doing is effective. It's not. And that's kind of the hardest thing, I think, to hear. I surveyed all of the criminology and criminal justice research that's been done on mandatory arrest and no-drop prosecution since the inception of those policies in the late 80s. And what I learned is that there is not a shred of evidence that supports the idea that either mandatory arrest or no-drop prosecution reduces rates of domestic violence or keeps people safer. I was terrified um, that I hadn't gotten the research right on that. And so I presented it to the American Criminological Society, to the best researchers, I think, in the field of uh, intimate partner violence. And then I waited for someone to tell me I was wrong. And no one did. There is no evidence to suggest that mandatory arrest makes women any safer. In the 80s, there was a study done in Minneapolis. And that first study in the late 80s in Minneapolis was done by a guy named Lawrence Sherman. And what Sherman said was, there's some reason to believe that in some families, mandatory arrest might make people safer, but it also makes some people less safe, most notably African-American women. He said, because of this modest effect, we should be cautious about adopting mandatory arrest policies. But outside of what was going on with Sherman's research, there was a whole set of class action lawsuits that were being brought against police departments across the country. And police departments were being found liable for their failure to intervene. And so mandatory arrest looked like a really good response to that, that if we show we have these policies, then nobody will sue us because we're intervening as much as we're supposed to be intervening. So in response to these lawsuits, and, and the most notable one is Thurman versus City of, of Torrington, Connecticut, where the police stood by while Tracy Thurman's abusive husband not only stabbed her, but while she was laying on a stretcher, came and threw their child down on top of her and then tried to kick her in the head again. The police just watched that. And Tracy Thurman was given a substantial award, which is fine and good, but she's still partially paralyzed from that attack. It was in response to things like the Thurman case that jurisdictions across the country passed mandatory arrest policies. Even though Sherman was saying, you know, please be cautious. Since that original Minneapolis study, there has been no study that has been able to replicate his findings. There have been studies that have tried, but no one has been able to replicate the finding that mandatory arrest has any kind of positive effect. And in fact, Sherman himself, who did those original studies um, just this year, uh, released a study showing that there was a fourfold increase in early death for victims in mandatory arrest jurisdictions. He hasn't explained why that is. I'm not sure one could explain why that is. But the, the existence of that correlation should be enough for someone to take pause. Mandatory arrest was also taken up by the Violence Against Women Act. So in the early years of the Violence Against Women Act, in order to get federal funding for courts and cops and prosecutors, you had to commit to a mandatory arrest policy. Uh, the Violence Against Women Act has since backed off of that position, and now you have to have either a preferred arrest, wait, you should arrest, not you have to arrest, or a mandatory arrest policy. And I think that's in recognition of the fact that there's been no showing that these things necessarily work. And in fact, there's been a serious downside for women because the rates of dual arrest, rates of arrest of both perpetrators and victims, and the rates of arrests of women have skyrocketed since the inception of mandatory arrest. So the biggest victims of mandatory arrest policy have actually been women. Incredibly problematic. 
There's no evidence to suggest that in mandatory arrest jurisdictions there are a greater number of prosecutions. In fact, there are fewer prosecutions in mandatory arrest jurisdictions because there are so many arrests flooding the system. They can't possibly prosecute all of those cases. There's no evidence to suggest that there are greater numbers of convictions in no-drop prosecution jurisdictions. What there are in mandatory arrest jurisdictions are stories like one that we saw in Baltimore City not that long ago, where when a woman who'd been subjected to abuse did not want to testify and did not appear in court, uh, one of our district court judges issued a body attachment and had her arrested and jailed for her failure to show up. Surely this cannot be what we intended when we started to advocate on behalf of these policies, that women subjected to abuse would end up in jail because they were not interested in having their perpetrators prosecuted. That cannot be. It certainly wasn't what I intended when I started doing this work. These policies are problematic because they fly in the face of the ethos of the early battered women's movement. So if you look at what the early battered women's movement was about, it was about empowerment and the idea that we would give women the tools to be able to make choices about how they wanted to deal with the abuse in their lives. And that could be a variety of tools. It didn't have to be just one thing. But we wanted women to be able to actualize, right, to bring into fruition their own goals, their own interests, their own plans. Um, in ways that they had not been able to do when they were in coercive and controlling relationships. And in some ways, we've simply put the, the state in the role of the batterer because the state now has the ability to tell her what she's going to do in the same way that the batterer has the ability to tell her what she's going to do. That's not, again, I think, the intention of the early battered women's movement. It really does violate that sense of empowerment and denies women autonomy. It denies people the ability to make free choices. Now, the answer the, or the counterargument to that has always been, well, women who are coercively controlled can't make choices for themselves, and they want other people to make their choices for them. Um, and they're grateful when we make decisions about arrest and prosecution because then they can't be blamed for those choices. That may well be true for some women. I will tell you that over 20 years I've represented, I would say at this point, probably thousands of women, um, at least 8,000. Um, and the number of them who were so coercively controlled that they were unable to make decisions for themselves was minuscule. But the number who had real problems with the way that the state was intervening in their lives was quite large. Uh, and so making law and policy around the needs of a very small population, I think, is very problematic. Again, you know, this is the place where I get the most pushback, and I think you could push back in a couple of ways. One is to say, what do you want, to go back to the bad old days where the police didn't arrest at all? And I, no, you know, clearly that's not what I want. And I'll, I'll tell you what I think a reconstructed legal system could look like. I think the other valid criticism, though, is how do you know that criminalization doesn't work? We never really tried it. Um, and so we continue to have very low rates of arrest. We continue to have very low rates of conviction. Sentences for domestic violence are ridiculously light. Um, we were talking today, um, just I think I can do this in a non-client identifying way. We have a case where our client was doused in lighter fluid, and then had a knife held to her back and was asked, you know, how do you want to die? How, which way do you want it? Because either way, you're going to die today. And that was charged as an assault, not attempted murder, which is what it is, but as a simple assault. And the reason was because she took a shower and she cleaned the lighter fluid off herself before she was able to escape. So she, what she should have done, apparently, was wait for her abuser to leave and then leave doused in lighter fluid to go see the police. So the answer is, you know, how do you know that criminalization doesn't work? We've never tried to give real sentences. We've never tried to put people in jail for long periods of time. 
I think that's a valid criticism. It's one I can't really answer. Um, but I can tell you that I don't think we ever will do that. And so given that we have this system that kind of criminalizes in half measure, is completely ineffective, and denies people the ability to make choices for themselves, that to me seems to be a system that we should be thinking about carefully. So my work looks at domestic violence law and policy through a different lens. Um, and the lens that I use is the lens of anti-essentialist feminism. And it, I propose principles um, and law and policy solutions that are based on that view. So an anti-essentialist feminist lens rejects the idea that there's this one woman around whom we should be making our law and policy and recognizes that such a conception simply substitutes the experiences of basically white middle-class women for all women um, in ways that are incredibly problematic for those who don't conform to that stereotype. Anti-essentialist feminism focuses on the ways that women's identities intersect so that when we're talking about a woman, we're talking about a low-income woman of color who brings with her a particular set of challenges. We're talking about a white rural woman. We're talking about a woman with disabilities. And all of these things profoundly affect the ways in which they experience violence and oppression in their lives. Anti-essentialist feminism also recognizes the importance of empowering individual women to make choices in their own lives based on how they understand their goals, how they understand their experiences, and how they want to have these things addressed. So in my system, we would be more woman-centered. Um, we would be woman-centered in the way that we define abuse, which would so this is a complicated concept and probably not one that's particularly well-suited to, you know, three minutes of talk. Um, but the idea behind it is, right now we define domestic violence as physical abuse. But others have suggested that a better way to define it would be as a crime that limits someone's liberty, that fundamentally limits the way that a person wants to live their life, that it controls them in some way. Physical abuse is one way of doing that. There are lots of ways of doing that. If you defined it in that life or liberty limiting kind of way, then you would have a much more woman-centered system because you would have a woman who could say, this is how my life has been controlled by this person's abuse. Rather than saying, this is the way that we define abuse. Can you meet that or not? It would also be woman-centered in the way that it allocates power. And what I mean by that is that women would get to make choices about how and when and, and whether the state intervenes in their lives. Um, it would avoid this basic, this kind of white victimization narrative um, in favor of an intersectional analysis that understands uh, that women of color experience differently, that low-income women experience differently, and so on. It would create a lot more options um, because it, once you accept that people experience abuse differently and that they make choices differently about how they want to address it, you've got to have a lot more options for them than just you can get a protective order, you can get a divorce, or you can send someone to jail. There's got to be more than that, um, at least in my system. Um, the fourth thing it would do is rehumanize men. So one of the things that we have done, I think, as a movement is to say that men, men who batter are demons. They're monsters. Um, and we have not given any real thought to how to interact with men as human beings who are doing something that we don't like as opposed to defining them as the thing that they're doing. I think that's problematic for two reasons. You know, one is because we have we we think in in kind of binaries, right? So if he's a monster, then she's got to be an angel, and if she's not an angel, then she's not really being abused. 
right? So we're, we're not just disadvantaging him by treating him as a monster. We're disadvantaging her by saying that she's got to be his opposite. And you see that all the time in court. You know, if, if she has done anything that is less than what the court thinks it should be, less than perfect in some way, then she's no longer a sympathetic figure who's going to be able to get anybody's protection. I think the other way that it's really problematic is that it doesn't help us solve the problem at all. So if our problem is that men, and I should have given my caveat at the beginning and I didn't and now I feel bad. Um, when, I, when I talk about this stuff, I talk about men as abusers. I talk about women as being abused. That's because the federal statistics say that it's about 85% of the victims of domestic violence are, are women generally and that in that 15% there's some same-sex relationships and there's some dual arrest stuff and so it's hard to know what those numbers really are. But of course there are men who are abused. Of course they're deserving of respect and help and I just defy this way because that's the way the numbers go. Um, But if our problem is men being abusive, then we don't change that by not interacting with the men in some way, right? Just saying, well, they're just devils, right? That's not helping us at all. And in the ways that we're interacting now, we're not having a particular impact. So if you look at the studies on batterers intervention programs, they're really discouraging. Um, Batterers intervention programs are not working. And I think the reason for that is because we've never stopped to try to really figure out why men batter. We've assumed we know why men batter. And Ellen Pence, who started one of the very first abuser intervention programs in the United States, said this shortly before she died. She said, you know, we assumed that men were doing it to get power and control. Well, the outcome is power and control, but we don't know why they're doing it, right? And those are two different things. And if we don't look at why someone's doing it, I don't think we're going to change anybody's behavior. Ultimately, the idea has to be to change the behavior of abusive men. I don't think you do that by just telling them that they're horrible human beings. So we think we have to think about rehumanizing men. And then we absolutely have to look beyond the legal system for solutions. Um, One of the kind of interesting projects I'm working on now is I'm working with a couple of criminologists to try to figure out what justice really means uh, to people who've been subjected to abuse. And then to figure out, okay, so what is, if it means that to you, how do we give that to you? There are lots of ways to think about justice. You know, in the United States, we think about justice as retributive justice, punishment um, through the criminal justice system. But there are lots of other ways to think about justice that may be more compelling for people subjected to abuse. Until we start to think about those things, I think we're not really delivering what people need. So what would all this look like? Um, In a reconstructed legal system, you would have, for example, a very different police response, that instead of mandatory arrest, you would have police who'd be trained on these issues, who could actually have conversations with uh, people when they go to their door to say, what's going on with you? If I arrest, this is what happens. He goes to central booking. He's there maybe tonight. Maybe he gets out tomorrow. Maybe he gets out on bail. Maybe he doesn't. Do you have a place to go that's safe in the meantime? Is this a way you want to go? What do you think the impact of arrest is going to be? So that she can make a reasoned decision about whether arrest is going to be the thing that best serves her or not. It might be. And for that reason, there there are people who are calling for total decriminalization of domestic violence. I am not one of them. I always have to say that because people don't believe me. Um, I'm not one of them. I want the legal system to be there for women who want to use it. And I want it to be responsive to their needs. So the police response would be much more about collaboratively working with victims to try to figure out whether arrest is actually going to give them what they need. Um, Interactions with prosecutors would go much the same way. Is prosecution going to work for you? Is this something that's going to give you what you need? What are the resources that you need to be able to participate in prosecution? If it's not going to give you what you need, then we don't need to do it. 
right? So thinking through those issues, um, thinking about things like restorative justice, which um, we don't, I feel like I'm going too long and I don't want to go much longer, but uh, thinking about alternative justice kinds of mechanisms that bring people together to try to heal some of the problems that they've had that the battered women's movement has not wanted to talk or think about because we have, they're dangerous, right? You can't bring two people into the room together and assume that, that we can have good outcomes because those things are too dangerous. Well, I think that, again, that's the same problem of telling her what she has available to her rather than asking her what she wants. If what she wants is to sit down and mediate a custody agreement because that gives her the most power over what that agreement looks like, we should figure out a way for that to happen, being attentive to the power imbalances that might exist and the potential for danger, but also understanding that for some women, being able to, to negotiate with your abuser is a way of asserting power. It's a way of saying, I know what I want. And you can't keep me from having that anymore. And it's better, frankly, than a lot of the cases that go through our adversarial system. We were in court yesterday, um, and I had a master yelling at my client, you're not going to get supervised visitation. You're not going to get that. Um, How that experience is a good experience for her, I don't know. It wasn't a good experience for me. Um, And I can't imagine that she enjoyed it particularly either knowing that, you know, this is somebody who's been incredibly abusive to her and the master just wasn't interested in hearing it. So looking at alternatives to litigation and looking at other kinds of legal remedies that might be useful from other areas of the law, things like tort and contract that we might be able to use to really benefit women subjected to abuse. And then thinking beyond the law um, about things like restorative justice, um, kinds of things that, that the aim is to heal communities, to bring you know, abusers and their partners together with their larger communities, with their circles of families and friends to try to figure out what are the dynamics here? How do we keep people safe? How do we repair these relationships? How do we ensure that uh, this perpetrator continues to have relationships with his children in ways that are safe for her? How do we get the community involved in keeping her safer? How do we create a network that's going to ensure that this kind of abuse doesn't continue? Um, thinking about other kinds of ways of delivering justice. So looking to South Africa, right, and the truth and reconciliation model. Um, a lot, of, there actually have been 40 now truth commissions worldwide that have looked at conditions post-genocide uh, or conditions after significant social upheaval and tried to figure out, you know, how do we bring people's truths to the surface? How do we hear them? How do we validate them? And then how do we give them some form of vindication? And I think we can do that in a domestic context, and we can do it in the context of domestic violence. Um, and how we get communities involved in helping to deliver that justice. And we're seeing that actually happening. Um, in Brooklyn, for example, the Black Women's Blueprint is doing a truth commission on sexual violence against African-American women. Um, and the idea is to give people a forum So you don't have to go to court to have a forum to tell your story and to have your community say, you know, what happened to you was wrong and that shouldn't have happened to you. And we can provide you with some kind of economic reparations. We can provide you with some kinds of the supports that you need to keep you safe. Not making people have to necessarily go through state-based systems. And, you know, the big thing that, of course, I left out was there are significant reasons why particularly low-income communities of color don't want to send all of their people into state-based systems. We have, we're warehousing African-American men, you know, already. And so there are lots of reasons why people don't want to go through those systems. Um, Thinking about economic stability, the single biggest uh, indicator for domestic violence is uh, employment instability. So if a man is unemployed, that is the biggest indicator for domestic violence. So it seems to me that we might do a lot more for reducing our rates of domestic violence by putting money into employment programs for men as opposed to prisons. 
but we haven't really explored that. And I think, so the other, I'll give you the other big critique of my book, which I think is a fair one. Um, when I started writing it at the time that I wrote it, I didn't really understand or think about the ways in which the larger structural factors, for example, in the economy might be affecting domestic violence. So I write some about this idea of employment. What I don't write about is how kind of the larger kind of economic structures make it so that low-income people live in conditions where domestic violence is more likely to happen and how do we deal with some of those bigger issues. Um, I just wasn't thinking in those terms. I, I wish I had been. I wish I was that big a thinker then. I'd like to think that I'm headed there now. And I think there are some really great people who are thinking about those kinds of things. Um, but there you go. That, that would be my other big critique. Um, we need to think about engaging men. I've talked about that already. But um, you know, men's abuse of women can only be stopped if men stop abusing women. Um, and so we have to think about how we change those behaviors. Batter intervention, as I said, doesn't have a great track record, but things like access to economic opportunity and trying to figure out what motivates men to change. You know, there's some research that says that... <laughs> there's some research that says that understanding the impact of violence on their children makes men change. There's some research that says that ties to a cultural community makes men change. And the biggest thing is um, when men engage other men, they are more likely to change. And so that's something I think when we've defined domestic violence as a women's issue, we haven't engaged men in it in the way that we should. I think we need to do that. And then we just have to think about community accountability. How is it that we can bring community support and also community sanction um, to bear on abuse? How do we send the message that the community can recognize and intervene in, support, in abusive situations, can support women subjected to abuse, can confront abusive men, and can create processes for ensuring that offenders are held accountable, but also that they change? And how do we articulate those norms to the wider community? How do we create a community that really embraces the idea that there shouldn't be abuse? Um, and those are hard questions, and those are hard things to grapple with, but I don't think we see any bigger change unless we start to do that. Um, one of my favorite stories, in Japan, um, groups of women will take pots and pans to the home of an abuser, and they'll stand outside the house and beat on the pots and pans, just make a tremendous racket. And it's a way of saying to the community, what he's doing is not acceptable, and we know about it, and we're not going to permit it. You know, similarly, there's a, a group called Saki for East Asian women, so, wait, Saki for South Asian women in New York, um, and what Saki has done is public shaming. So you go to his house and you pick it and you say, you don't get to do this. You know, these are strategies that at least we should be talking about as a community, as a way of sending a signal to our community that abuse is not acceptable. And I think that really, you know, the thing I end with is lawyers have a real role to play here. And so thinking about if we're not going to necessarily use the legal system, what are the ways in which we can use the law to send ideas about these norms, right? How do we establish these norms in the community? Um, it's a big agenda. And, you know, I've started to work on it a little bit piecemeal. So the stuff I'm working on now is about how to create community justice forums for women subjected to abuse um, and to try to make that real. So how do you, re how do you uh, recruit members of the community to come and hear these claims? And how do you create safe space for people to share their stories? And if what people want is just the ability to tell those stories and be vindicated in some way to have the community say, what happened to you was wrong, you know, how, how can we create space that does that? And I'm hopeful um, that we can get to that place. I'm not so naive as to believe that the system is going to change, you know, necessarily in the ways that I think it should. 
But I also think that if we don't articulate the ways in which we think the system needs to change, we'll never get anywhere. So that's what I've tried to do. So for those of us that do work in this system and work in the legal system, how do we, if let's say we understand that prosecution isn't necessarily the best solution for some of our victims, for example, right now I have a victim who's, I think she's four or five months pregnant and the prosecution is trying to send the her abuser to jail for a minimum of six months and wants him to do the entire time. And she's in this position where she she has almost no autonomy because the prosecutor has decided that this guy is a bad guy and he needs to go to jail. And she's like, I'm doing July. He'll be in jail in July. I don't want to have this baby by myself. You know, how do, how do we as, rather than as lawyers, how do we work better as advocates for women in that kind of position without the prosecution being like, what is the matter with you? How can you possibly call yourself a domestic violence attorney? You know, like, how do we bridge that gap? So, you know, I would say that there's an immediate answer and a longer-term answer. The longer-term answer is, Jess, I'm going to pick on you again, but, like, Jess is one of my students, and I know she wants to be a prosecutor. And I think it's my job to make sure that she understands we got to create good prosecutors. So part of it is on us, right, who are who are teaching this stuff in law schools to say, you can be a great prosecutor, but you've got to be attentive to what your clients actually want. And they're not your clients because your client is the state, but to what the victims actually want. So I feel like, you know, I know that there are a number of my former students who are prosecutors, and I feel good about those people because I know that they know um, to do more than, you know, what what you've just described. Okay, that being said, um, beyond kind of... It's interesting, well, just to say... 20 years ago, nobody was talking about domestic violence in law schools. And so thinking about how you teach this subject, how you impart this information, and and kind of the ways in which um, you train prosecutors, I think, is incredibly important, that being said. I think part of it is you have to know for yourself that you are a great advocate and that in taking this position, you are being a good advocate so that you can't let other people beat you down. You happen to work, and we're having personal conversations at this point, you happen to work in an organization that I think is open to the idea that prosecution is not necessarily the best alternative for everyone. And so no one is going to go back to your boss and say she's a lousy domestic violence advocate. So knowing that, I think, gives you some freedom uh, to try to have those conversations with the prosecutor to say, look, I understand that you, you and I have different roles within this system, right? Your role, as you see it, is to ensure public safety. And the way that you see that happening is by putting this person in jail. My role is to advocate for this woman and what she wants. And what she wants is not to be alone when this baby comes. And what she wants is to have some economic support and some parenting support. Would you please take that into account? And we just have to keep having those hard conversations because that's the way that education happens, right, is on that person-to-person kind of basis. And, you know, most of the time they're going to go, no, (laughs) I'm not going to do that. Um, And part of that is about role conflict, right? We have prosecutors have a different job, and we have to be attentive to the fact that their job is different than our job. But that doesn't mean we stop advocating for our clients within that system. I think too often um, those of us who do work on the civil side don't engage the criminal side at all. You know, we don't go talk to prosecutors. We don't deal with kind of advocating in that moment. And the more that we do that, I think, the better a job we can do protecting our clients. Thank you. 
my background is research, and how I got involved in uh, you know domestic violence issue. I met a young lady. I met at school actually. Um, I was just taking a couple of courses, and I found out that she was a victim of domestic violence. And I encouraged her to go and get seek help and counseling and do that because I'm more into the psychological aspect. You know, when you have women and men who do abuse or have been abused, they need to get some psychological help. When I did my research, I did contact the Institute of um, Domestic Violence for African Americans um, in Minnesota, I think yep. it was. And they actually do treatment. They actually take the men who are abusers and actually do forms of treatment yep. because they want to, you know, deal with the issues of why African-American men abuse. Um, I also um, found a couple of good articles. One I mean, article of a professor, who, a psychologist, Dr. Chisler, she wrote, can good enough mothers lose custody of their children to violent and abusive men? Yeah, the answer to that is yes. Right. And, and this young lady did also recently. And she actually went to court recently. And this ma- a master did treat her the same way. Yeah. And she didn't even have a lawyer. And she was like, why, why are you attacking me? Well, and just to, you know, one of the huge problems that we have, and most of you know this, but is that you know, very, very few people who go through the family court system have lawyers. So in, in right. Maryland, 95%, in 95% of the cases, one or both parties is unrepresented. Right. So you're trying to deal with these very sophisticated issues on your own as you're experiencing emotional trauma, as you're confronting your abuser. It's, it's an almost impossible situation. So um, I guess the point I'm making is I would like to see it go into more of a psychological because I think that the... The law schools and the lawyers, they really need to get the mental health uh, groups involved, um, and they're not. You know, I, you know, I have friends who are psychologists, and they deal with women who are abused, and they deal with men who are abused. And I'd like to see that input with the two groups coming together, including training judges as well and masters, <laughs> because when you have a master, you have men, you have abusers who are very manipulative, like yeah. sociopaths almost, and they're very conning, cunning, and they can sway the courts to yeah. and their lawyer to say that that woman is the bad one. And this is what happened to this young lady. And I'm still trying to mentor her and have her go further with this. Another thing is, I think that... Um, uh, when you deal with them, um, I, I happened to talk to a friend of my dad, and he's he's a retired minister, a doctor of um, theology, and he when he goes into the prisons, um, he does ministry work, and I asked him a question: What were some of the things you were hearing from the men who have been locked up? And he said how they hate their mothers. He said that was the biggest, and he's toured a crowd around the country and outside the country, mm-hmm. and the most that comes out their mouths is the fact that they dislike their mothers. So we really need to get into the from the mental health perspective as well, find out what happened. Are these men abused, which we know they are? And we need to deal with abuse from the male perspective as well as from the female perspective because a lot of young boys are abused. They grow up and they become abusers mm-hmm. as well. So we really need to mesh both the, the judicial or the legal and the mental health and start dealing with abuse on both sides. Yeah, so I would just say a couple of things. You know, one is... Um 
there are very few good, better intervention programs. Oliver Williams, who runs the Institute on Domestic Violence in the African-American community, runs one of them. Right. Um, Oliver's amazing, and the work that he does is amazing. And part of what he does is engage around fatherhood right. um, and the idea that men care about what happens to their kids, even if they don't care about what happens to their partners. Um, there are lots of really good law social work partnerships. And so you see in organizations like House of Ruth, where you have lawyers and social workers working side by side. And that's absolutely the best model, I think, for doing this kind of work. Um, there was one other thing I was going to say, but I don't remember what. Um, How about getting, I think the, the churches, we have to really get the churches. Yeah, so, too. you know, it's been interesting. There have been real efforts to involve churches. Um, for, you kind of see it go in waves, like every 10 years, there's this huge push to involve churches again. And it, it's um, it's been an interesting process, I think, Um Especially there's the a lot American of, churches. There's a lot of resistance in religious communities to the idea that domestic violence is a problem that they should be taking on. And, and I think you know, there are interfaith coalitions and lots of folks that work on it, but it, I think that's a tough one. Um, my Not favorite, one of my... Most, most churches are run by... Most w- people who attend the churches are women. Right, I but think most of them are run by men. <laughs> I think it has to be a movement by women of color yeah. as well to really get their churches and go involved because not pastors are even abused. Yeah. Well, that's what I was going to say. One of my favorite cases ever um, involved a pastor who was abusing his wife and his whole defense was, you know, I'm a pastor. Right. I was like, well, you know, pastors abuse their wives and doctors abuse their wives and lawyers abuse their wives. There's nothing that says it's just because you're a pastor, you're not abusive. And, you know, we won. And his wife really felt like that was huge vindication because he had been getting a pass from everyone because he was a pastor. And she was the evil person. Yeah. I, he, I think you had your hand up a while back. Well, I watch. It's a good microphone. I watch uh, a lot of the Dateline shows and uh, yeah, twenty twenty stuff. And it seems to me that every time there is a protective order, a lot of times the cops either lose it or they they don't know what uh, they don't they have an excuse why. It didn't. They didn't see it, or or if they do do it, then they break in. The guy breaks in the house. The woman doesn't know, yeah. and so uh, it seems like that's. What's, do you have the statistics of what happens when they have protective order? Because I, th- I thought protective order would be a good thing to do to protect. It's there. Yeah. That's a pretty hotly contested area about the effectiveness of protective orders, and and so basically. And the problem is that you don't want to be the person who says protective orders are pieces of paper because they're not. They're more than that, right? They carry the authority of the court for people who are deterred by the thought that they could be held criminally responsible for the violation of protective order and they could go to jail. Protective orders are really effective. For people who don't care that they're going to jail if they violate a protective order, protective orders are not effective. And so there's, you know, there's been research. Jane did some of the first research um, here in Maryland. Um, there's a lot of research that goes back and forth on what the effectiveness of protective orders actually is. I will say, and I remembered the other thing I wanted to say, which is about training, and it goes to kind of both of your points. I did judicial training as my job for three years. I trained judges about domestic violence. I don't really believe in the power of training particularly, and I don't believe in it for cops, and I don't believe in it for judges, which is a really horrible thing to say because it leaves you with very few options about how you change systems. But I say that because people bring such deeply rooted beliefs about this stuff that a one-hour or a two-hour or a one-day training is not going to change that. 
So I've done more judicial training with all kinds of other professionals, including Oliver Williams, um, than I care to think about. And I think what happens in those trainings is that judges who agree with you continue to agree with you. And judges who disagree with you continue to disagree with you. And they continue to treat people horribly. And the people who are in the middle don't come to the trainings unless they're mandatory. And now in, you know, in this day and age, they stay on their phones the whole time. Um, what really changes a judge is a bad experience. When you are the judge who fails to grant the protective order to the woman who gets killed, that changes you. Um, when you are the judge who has personal experience somehow with somebody who's been abused, that changes you. And I don't, I think until community norms change so that people don't grow up with those really deep seated attitudes, so that, because cops ignore protective orders. You know, I was smiling at Jess because we have been fighting with the cops for two weeks now to try to get a protective order served on a guy, you know, who's a, terrible human being and the cops should care but they don't um partly it's because they don't think they work and partly it's because it's an add-on to their job and partly it's you know because they just don't care um and so it's all you know this until we change societal attitudes about this stuff it won't seep out into all of these systems that we're relying on the other thing i would say is um cops are a big problem in and of themselves so rates of domestic violence among police officers some studies suggest are two to four times higher than in the general population um and those studies are self-report studies so that means cops were relying being relied upon to report that they were being abuses i would guess that the numbers are much higher so how it is exactly that we expect cops to be the ones to police domestic violence when they're much more likely to be committing it, I don't know. And they have guns, which makes the whole thing a lot worse. Yeah. As a victim of uh, emotional and uh, financial abuse, I will say that I should be in your book because I am who you wrote about. Okay. The system failed me from top to bottom. Yeah. That includes the, um, the abusive, the abuse um, resources, the supporters, all of that, the counselors, top to bottom, because there is no dynamic. There is nothing in the law. There is nothing anywhere that you can do when your spouse is emotionally and financially abusing you. You get no help. And when you're married and you live in an urban area and the, the, uh, people like the House of Ruth are more used to dealing with single women who are being abused by their whatever they are. And um, they're not used to dealing with married women and their issues. Now, throw in disability, and they forget it. They lost, okay? So there's a big problem there. So I'm one of those women... Oh, sorry, can't help you. And you're saying, okay, so what do I do now? How many women have been are dead because of that? How many women are injured because they didn't get any help? How many women have had nervous breakdowns are now in a private institution? These women have kids, and I'm not talking about grown kids. I have a child. The only reason I'm still there is because I have a child, and I can't leave financially. I can't do it. And to say, get up and leave, done work. Mm -hmm. And if you ask me, okay, that's really nice. I can't do that. What else can I do? 
Where else can I go? Who else can I talk to? No one. There's nothing there. Absolutely nothing. And you talk to a lawyer, and they're going like, hey, well, can't help you unless you're going to divorce the man or give a protective order. Oh, and try getting a protective order. That was fun, too. Well, you don't have any grounds. Oh, this man's getting ready to kill me. I don't have any grounds. Oh, okay, well, all right, well, all right fine. Or you have the police officers who are arguing about whether it's abuse or not. Mm-hmm. The males are going like, eh, that's not abuse. The females are going, are you crazy? Yes, it is. And they're arguing. And you're standing there like, oh, oh, oh okay. Who go- well, well, what is it? Is it or is it not? Then they refer you and say, oh, well, you're a fatality risk. I guess so. With that walker, I will be a fatality risk. And they refer you out. And I was going like, they said, well, we got referred. I said, well, here's the story. Oh, well, we can't help you. Well, why did they refer me? So if I'm, if I'm going to get killed, <laughs> just tell me straight up. You know, so I know what I'm doing. So how do you get women, all women, because this is just not me. Just because my face is black does not mean it's not happening to other women. And I'm talking about married women because that seems to be a very big problem. And married women come with a whole lot of things that single women do not have. They don't have. Yeah, you know... You should have given this talk and not me. Um, I, I'm not going to give you a pat answer. You know there's not one, right? You know there's no easy answer to that. Um, mm-hmm. And that's, I think, part of why – that's part of the biggest part of my critique, which is in a case like yours where there's not physical abuse, where there's not anything that clearly fits within the law – what we have as a system to offer you is very limited. So if you look at the way that we funded, for example, domestic violence law and policy in this country, right? the single biggest funding source is the Violence Against Women Act. And the two biggest grants in the Violence Against Women Act put hundreds of millions of dollars into courts, cops, and prosecutors. Right? So we very clearly prioritize the criminal justice response. So if you look at it, uh, I think in the last Violence Against Women Act, it was $290 million for courts, cops, and prosecutors, $40 million for transitional housing, even though every survey shows that housing is the biggest, single biggest barrier for women who are seeking to leave abusive relationships. So there isn't really an easy answer for you except to say that you know what you're saying is exactly what I'm saying. Um, you're just saying it with a lot of hard-earned personal knowledge, and I'm sorry for that. Me too. Um, so that's an interesting question. You know, in theory, Congress decides, right? It's an authorization from the from the legislature. But there are national advocacy groups that have had tremendous amounts of influence on the way that VAWA was written, on the on VAWA's priorities, and on the way that grants are allocated. And so, if you go back, we were talking about this before, right? If you go back to 1984, um, 1984 is the first time the federal government starts to think at least about the criminal justice response. There's been intermittent funding of services for domestic violence prior to that. But in 84, the Attorney General's Task Force on Domestic Violence puts out a report that says this is a criminal justice problem, needs to get dealt with as a criminal justice problem. 1994, the Violence Against Women Act passes for the first time, and you see these two huge grant programs, grants to encourage arrest and stop. Uh, And both of those are about arrest policy, prosecution policy. 
And that happened because of this coalition of law and order conservatives who very much wanted to make this a criminal justice issue and battered women's advocates who were desperate to get this on the national agenda and to get funding for anything that they could get funding for. And some really hard, I think, problematic deals were struck at that time, which was to say, you know, we can get you federal funding, but only if we go about it this way. And so as much as, you know, as much as law and order conservatives are responsible for that focus, so are battered women's advocates, and they continue to be. So the national organizations like the National Coalition Against Domestic Violence, the National Network to End Domestic Violence, Legal Momentum, um, all of those organizations have representatives who work on VAWA task forces with the legislators who bring VAWA forward and, you know, up through Vice President Biden at this point. And they're setting the priorities. That means some very good things happen, like you get expanded protection for LGBT folks, and you get expanded protection for undocumented women. But it also means that they're buying into some really what I think is problematic policy, which is the continued huge amount of funding that goes to criminalization. So you know, the shorter answer is we do to a certain extent, or at least those of us who have voices within the national policy realm. And a lot of that is those organizations that you know, we support. Uh, well, I just want to say thank you. Um, thank you all for coming. Thank you.